Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome to Reconsider, where we don't do the thinking for you part, of course, of the Agora Podcast Network. Today, we're doing a really interesting show. We've actually focused last se- several shows on the United States, which, you know, frankly, kind of makes sense because uh, there's a lot going on here and we're here. So it's been front and center on our minds. But a little while back, we did a survey of our listeners. And one of the things mm. that our listeners really enjoyed about Reconsider, it turns out, is uh, our episodes on international affairs and foreign policy. So we are Again, going to turn our gaze outside of the U.S. and look at a very small territory of land that recently has received quite a lot of attention. Yes. Armenia and Azerbaijan are at war. These are areas in the Caucasus that probably 10 years ago, even I would struggle to find on a map, much less, you know, your average not Middle Eastern or Caucasus or Near East person. Um, tiny little states, a couple million people we're talking about. And it's a big deal, which might get you scratching your head as to why. And we're going to cover that, of course. Right now, they are engaged on a 120-mile front in Azerbaijan. Probably thousands already dead. We don't know. We're not going to try to keep up hour by hour here. You can get that on Reuters. But what we are going to talk about is why are they fighting why does the geography matter? You know, what's the, the geopolitical context? How did the conflict originate? And how could other countries get involved and turn this local conflict into a much bigger regional one? There's a lot of history in this that matters. We're going to get into it. And this is a very contentious issue for may- maybe clear reasons in a way that the Kosovar War was very contentious in the Balkans. And it was people came down hard on, on certain sides. and. On Reconsider, we try to be upfront if we feel strongly about one or another issue because we want our, our listeners to know where we're coming from. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take one of these. these up, I'm being upfront and sharing my own personal opinions on this issue. It's hard for me to not side with uh, Armenia on, on, on this particular one, in part because, as we'll discuss, Nagorno-Karabakh or Artsakh is predominantly... Armenian, like 95% of people living in the uh, 150,000 or so populated. There's about 150,000 people who live there, and almost everyone there is Armenian. They want to be part of Armenian or independent. There are different perspectives, but they definitely don't want to belong to Azerbaijan. And I I feel like when it comes down to the self-determination thing, like that seems fair. And I'll explain why I think this is a little bit more as we get into the episode. But as always, going to do my best to really just explain what's going on, but it's fair that you know that I think that. Yeah, and I have I have less of a pre-developed opinion on this. Longtime listeners know we did an episode on nationalism and its history and what it means, how it kind of transformed from a great liberal word into a dirty word. And this is a conflict of that kind of old school nationalism you know where where people of a certain ethnic background say hey we have a we have a right to self determination we have a right to rule ourselves and one of the things to keep in mind is that the armenians speak a substantially different language language from the azerbai or azeris excuse me they speak a significantly different language from the azeris azeri is much closer to turkish um it is a turkic language they are christian where the azeris tend to be muslim 
And so you have these, you know, if, if this sounds a lot like the Kosovar War, if this sounds a lot like the Balkans, there's a lot of similarities here. And, you know, we, of course, saw relative peace in the Balkans after the, you know, after it was broken up and, and that ended with Kosovo becoming its own country. The alternative perspective on this is that it is dangerous and bad precedent for people to, you know, for people to want to redraw lines all the time, kind of based on, you know, based on anything, right? So for example, Russia could make the same claim that the Crimeans are, are ethnically Russian. A lot of them speak Russian. Crimea should be Russian. And so I think, you know, in as much as the self-determination perspective is a pretty, is a very powerful one. And I think leads to a lot of, a lot of sympathy. The, just the devil's advocate that I'll hang over this is the global precedent of, you know, conflict to redraw borders being bad generally, and it being tough for the international community to create a consistent set of rules and norms for when that's okay and when that's not okay. But uh, let's get let's get back to the the meat. Yeah. So first off, just the bare basics. Armenia and Azerbaijan, two countries in the Caucasus, as Eric mentioned, they're small. And it's helpful if you're not driving, look at a picture of a map. The, the Caucasus are just right on this little strip of land in between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea uh, below the Caucasus mountain range. It's a very big mountain range separating sort of this little area in between Iran and Turkey and Russia. And Armenia and Azerbaijan have kind of essentially been in a, in a state of status quo war since the Soviet Union fell. And part of this is uh, part of the war has to do with control over this territory called Nagorno-Karabakh. Now, uh, many Armenians uh, are not happy with that name. They, they would instead prefer that you call it Artsakh, the Republic of Artsakh, because people in this region have said they want to be an independent state called Artsakh. Um, I, there's a Vice documentary that I watched uh, where a journalist recently, within the last couple of weeks, went to Artsakh slash Karabakh, and some of the Armenians there still refer to the area as Karabakh because it, it, um, it just refers to this area. It means mountainous, mountainous Karabakh as opposed to another part of the, the area. So if I refer to it just as Karabakh, um, I'm assuming it's okay because Armenians living there also refer to it as Karabakh. So that, that out of the way. Yep. We will be using these terms interchangeably, even though they do not actually represent the same thing. The Republic of Artsakh is a self-declared republic. So, and it is current, it has been since 1994 uh, under the de facto control of Armenians and protected by Armenian forces. It is larger than the province of Nagorno-Karabakh. The province of Nagorno-Karabakh is an Azerbaijani you know, political designation. So the, the Azerbaijani government drew a, a border around this space, Nagorno-Karabakh, that is, that is landlocked. It is an island within Azerbaijan. Uh, it does not touch anything else, water or border, where the Republic of Artsakh is a this self-declared republic. Uh, they have their their own territorial claims as to what is encompassed by Artsakh. Artsakh touches a lot of Armenia. Um, so to its west, it borders Armenia, even though the province of Nagorno-Karabakh does not. And the the third warble in this is what is the de facto area that the Republic of Artsakh controls and is defended by Armenia, that doesn't even quite line up with the claims, the territorial claims of the Republic of Artsakh. So they claim areas outside of their zone of control. There is the de facto zone of control, the de facto Republic. And then uh, smaller still is the province of Nagorno-Karabakh. And so it's, it's heinously complicated. There is a great map that I stole from Wikipedia. Uh, that we've put up on the uh, God bless everyone who does Wikipedia, by the way, and and please do give money to them when they come calling because um, it's a wonderful resource. But this map, for those of you who are interested, is up on uh, the website reconsidermedia.com. But that is the that is the complex mess of lines and political status that we are dealing with, and 
perhaps it's not a huge surprise that there is some conflict over right and it really is a full-on war right now best as 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 i can tell it 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 has been uh, ongoing since 1994 when a prior war ended between the two of them. And there have been flare-ups like in 2016, there was sort of a four-day war, they call it, where several hundred people were killed, but then diplomacy sort of took back over and they were able to negotiate a ceasefire. Uh, this time, the, the violence erupted in the end of September and we're recording on the 25th of October. So it's been ongoing for a month, which is the longest uh, conflict that... Uh, or the longest period of conflict that has been seen since the end of the war in the 1990s. And different reports of people killed have, have surfaced here and there. Some of the figures say several hundred people, soldiers have died, where tens of civilians have died. Other sources have said that thousands of people have died, uh, hundreds of civilians uh, on both sides. So this has really spiraled into sort of a, a new iteration of this conflict. Now, the crux of the conflict has to do with control over this territory, Nagorno-Karabakh, which sort of sits in the middle of Armenia and Azerbaijan. It is technically, legally recognized by the international community as belonging to Azerbaijan, but it is predominantly occupied by Armenians. Uh, many or most people within Karabakh wish to be either a part of Armenia or independent or their own Republic of Artsakh. And Nagorno-Karabakh has been occupied by Armenian forces since 1994. So it's been under effective Armenian control for almost 30 years, even though the international community recognizes it as part of, uh, part of Azerbaijan. Now, so the question, you might have the question, why does the international community recognize Nagorno-Karabakh as belonging to Azerbaijan? And this is where the history starts to be really important. When the Soviet Union fell, people living in Nagorno-Karabakh petitioned essentially the, the Azerbaijan Soviet Socialist Republic, SSR, um, as well as Moscow to become part of Armenia. And Nagorno-Karabakh had belonged to the Azerbaijan SSR since like 1920. And we'll get into the history of why. But when different Soviet Socialist Republics were petitioning for their own independence when the Soviet Union was falling, um, it was essentially based on the lines that were drawn for those SSRs within the, within the Soviet Union. So, so, sort of ironically, the international community recognized the lines that were drawn within the Soviet Union by the Soviet Union, Union before it fell. Um, so if that's you know, complicated, it's, it's, it's because it is. So then we need to get into a little bit of the history of why this predominantly ethnic Armenian place was drawn within the Azerbaijan SSR in the first place. So we're going backwards in history here, right? 2020 conflict, 2016 flare-up, major war in 1994, which established Armenian control over Artsakh slash Nagorno-Karabakh. 1988 was when the, the Armenian population in that region asked, you know, petition for independence and were denied by the Soviet Union. So conventionally, the caucuses had been held by the Ottoman Empire, which was falling apart. The Russians and the Ottomans were at war. Uh, the Russian Empire ended up taking it, but the Russian Empire took a battering in World War I and shrank afterward. The nation of Azerbaijan was declared in 1918. But then, of course, after World War I, the Bolsheviks show up, they take over Russia, and they also roll down into the Caucasus and take over the South Caucasus in 1920 after a British occupation of Azerbaijan. <laughs> so the Russians took this area from the Ottomans, the Russians fell apart, the Brits had temporary control as like the Brits and French had a large amount of control over the Middle East and were redrawing borders after World War I. Uh, the Bolsheviks came in and took it and incorporated it into the Soviet Union. And so Azerbaijan was, you know, quickly formed, quickly made part of the Soviet state and uh, became a Soviet socialist republic. And Stalin implemented this policy that is called like the nationalities policy. And the idea was, how do we go about drawing these lines in the Soviet Union um, in a way that, I mean, he was trying to kind of like not recognize nationalism in a way, right? Because communism was supposed to supersede that. But at the same time, he still needed to draw borders and attempt to assert control over all of these territories that the Soviet Union was um, taking over. 
and would continue to take over as it, as it grew. So what Stalin did, and this was really kind of just Stalin, as far as I understand, you know, he had his, his communist uh, underlings, but he decided to take this region called Nagorno-Karabakh, which had been occupied by Armenians for a long time. And even though the state of Azerbaijan was pretty new at the time, Armenia as like a cultural heritage had existed for thousands of years. There was an Armenian empire back in the Roman times. And so these folks have been there for a while. There's, you know, anyways, Stalin recognized this and, and said, okay, well, one way that um, I could try to assert control over this territory is essentially just give control of part of it to their potential enemies. And there had already been fighting by 1920 between Azerbaijan or the Azeris and Armenians. Um, and this was like a very classic divide and conquer sort of thing or divide and rule, mm-hmm. right? Yes. So Nagorno-Karabakh. Very British Empire style. Yeah, exactly. Um, Nagorno-Karabakh was given to Azerbaijan Soviet Socialist Republic by Stalin on purpose in order to keep the region divided so that he could control it. Um, so that's essentially why when the Soviet Union began to fall apart in 1988, Nagorno-Karabakh was within Azerbaijan's borders. So that's, that's kind of the, the near-term history. Now, by 1918, the uh, Armenians had already suffered the Armenian Genocide, which was committed by the Ottoman Empire. That occurred primarily between 1915 and 1916, although there were more mass killings that occurred after that and population relocations that followed. And so this hatred towards Turkic people really already existed at the, at the time because they were killed by, by the Turks. Um, and unlike Germany, Turkey has not owned up to the genocide yet. They, they say, oh, well, these, this wasn't really a genocide. It was something that occurred in these complex events in World War I. And while that's also true, and I think it's important to try to understand what those complex events are because we want to understand why genocides happen so that we can prevent right. them, it was also right. still a genocide. Something like 1.5 to 2 million Armenians killed within the Ottoman Empire, which was the majority of them. And largely driven out of the borders of Turkey. So you can look at these before and after maps that I should, I'll get on the post. The sort of Armenian population in Turkey before and after it goes from, you know, much like the Greeks, it goes from lots of them everywhere to, hey, where'd they all go? And of course, the, the Turkish story is, eh, you know, they got tired of it and they moved out. Yeah. And that was, not, that was not actually what happened. And then after that, uh, if I recall correctly, it was around this time period, like 1920. So after Stalin, after this, this region of Nagorno-Karabakh is given to Azerbaijan, that the the cultural capital, the Armenian cultural capital of the Nagorno-Karabakh Artsakh region is sacked by Azeris. And I, we've actually, it's amazing, there's, this, there's this, photo, this old photo of it where you just have all these shelled out, burnt out buildings. What was the context, Xander, of that uh, massacre at Shusha happening? Yeah, so Shusha, which was the cultural capital, it still is the cultural capital of Nagorno-Karabakh, even though the administrative capital is now called Stepanakert. So if you're reading the news, you will, you will read about Stepanakert. Shusha has been sacked and burned to the ground several times by both sides in the, in the course of different wars um, because it's just strategically located. But there was violence going on in Shusha uh, before 1918. So if you, if you want to try to understand why Stalin gave part of this Armenian occupied territory to Azerbaijan, you have to understand sort of why they started fighting in the first place. Because if you go far enough back before the emergence of nationalism in the 19th century, people in the Caucasus lived relatively peacefully next to each other because there's usually some sort of outside administrative power, whether it's the Ottoman Empire or the Russian Empire or some iteration of a Persian empire controlling different parts of the Caucasus. But, or, or the Eastern Roman Empire. Uh, yeah, you go far, far enough back. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. And, the, and the Armenians are there. I remember the Armenians playing a very big part of um, the Eastern Roman Empire's defensive strategy against uh, first the, you know, the, the Muslim Caliphate and then the you know, Turkic nomads. Fairly, you know, fairly powerful, fiercely independent Armenian empire around Lake Van that, mm-hmm. you know, that was that was uh, that cooperated with, you know, and, and, and 
you know, they were smart. They play, they knew when to cooperate with different sides. They tried to, they tried to be friendly with everyone. They were never big enough to, you know, they were never big enough to take on the Eastern Romans slash Byzantines or the, or the Muslim Caliphate or the, the Turkic nomads slash uh, Sultanate on their own. And, you know, they were, they were, they leaned a little more Byzantine because they were Christian and saw themselves as, as part of the Roman, uh, you know, sphere of influence more than the Muslim sphere of influence. But, and, and they were even at that time period, I was looking at maps because I'm, I'm following Robin's history of Byzantium uh, as he really, it's so good. So I'm following that. And even at that time in the 600s, we're seeing, substantial Armenian presence in very specifically this Nagorno-Karabakh region. So it's worth noting that this was um, because I had suspected, oh, is is it possible that due to the genocide and the displacement of all these Armenians, that a lot of them moved into this Nagorno-Karabakh region? Yes, but it's because there was already there were already literally millennia of, of Armenian settlements and Armenian culture there. Yeah. And many of my Armenian friends, for example, consider Armenia to be the first adopt the state adopter of Christianity. So there's a long mm-hmm. history of, you know, Armenians existing in this part of the world um, and playing uh, varying important political uh, roles throughout history. But before the emergence of nationalism in the 19th century, Armenians and what came to be called Azeris, because the notion of, of Azeri as a national identity didn't really exist before the 19th century. It, it was... At, at first, if you read primary source documents sort of from the late 19th century, the idea of an Azeri uh, really was tied more to like where people lived as opposed to who they were. And that started to become more cemented as uh, European nationalism reached the Caucasus. And sort of like the Balkans, it reached the Caucasus a little bit later than it reached the rest of Western Europe. So it really began to be cemented in the late 19th century. In the early 20th century is when the, the violence between Armenians and what came to be called Azeris really began to take place. So by the time you get to the First World War and Stalin granting Nagorno-Karabakh to Azerbaijan, there had already been a fair amount of massacres. Um, the first real uh, outbreak of violence occurred in 1905 when there was, it was, the Russian Empire was still there, um, either in control or partially in control. And some scholars refer to this as the Armeno-Tatar War. Because the Muslims who lived there were not even being called Azeris necessarily at that point in history, just to give you a sense of how fluid these identities are. But um, it, was, it was a very complicated time. There's not a ton of primary source documents. And one of the main primary source documents was actually um, a Russian diplomat who sat there to try to figure out what happened. And while there was killing that occurred on both sides in this period of 1905 to 1907, I want to be sure that I emphasize that there's there was also a lot of effort to overcome the violence. So when we talk about these groups of people killing each other, they're not unitary actors, right? There are, there are people who, on the Azeri side and the Armenian side, who loved each other. And you read some uh, primary source documents about you know people who, live, who had lived there a long time, and they, they were neighbors, and they had intermarried, and so on and so forth. Um, and there were committees that were put together to try to overcome the violence in this period in 1905 to 1907, but essentially it didn't work. Um, and once you get to the point of violence, it's very hard to step back. And that's why on Reconsider, for example, we've been huge advocates of stepping back from violence in the U.S. because it can just create the cycle and momentum that's very hard to step back from. But the point is, by the time you get to Stalin giving Karabakh to Azerbaijan, there had already been incidences of massacres of Armenians and Azeris that had occurred about 15 years before. So if you want to trace the history of where this conflict really kind of comes about, it's early 20th century, late 19th century, as ideas of nationalism start to come about. But, you know, for example, there's this, we're, we're going to link to some of these uh, academic articles because it's, it's, it's tough to find history yeah. written about this period, but um, it, written about this 1905 period. Um, but from this one article, uh, there's a quote about Baku's mayor at the time, and, and Baku is the capital of uh, Azerbaijan. And it reads, Baku's mayor in Azeri answered that he was just sincerely happy that Yerevan was peaceful. He also expressed sorrow that in these difficult times, the energies of progressive people are spent not on mutual cultural work on behalf of centuries-old neighbors, but in efforts to put an end to senseless bloodletting. So there were lots of people back then who really didn't want to be fighting each other. 
So we have this history of, you know, Armenian and Turkic people living in this region for, you know, the Turkic people showed up in the second, early in the second millennium. And so almost a thousand years living together, most of which quite peacefully, again, largely under the largely under the Ottoman Empire, but before that as as players in the Byzantine and and Turkic Sultanate game. And it was, you know, the the critical moments that we start to see making this a region that is conflict prone are first the rise of nationalism and the idea of self-determination in Europe in the 1800s. And then, you know, which, which made its way throughout the rest of the world. So that's one. And then two, the choice by the Soviet Union to group, to, you know, to not group uh, these ethnic groups together, but instead draw borders where multiple ethnic groups were in the same area. Uh, see, you know, Nagorno-Karabakh, that was a very intentional decision. We can see a similar recent history of the implications of decisions like this in the Balkans, right? Formerly Yugoslavia, this idea that, ah, yes, you're all Slavic, you'll get together great, it will be fine. Not the case, right? Because in Bulgaria, or in, sorry, in the Balkans, much like in the Caucasus, you had lots of, you've had a history of lots of back and forth push and push warfare between, um, you know, primarily Orthodox Christian and Muslim, uh, often Ottoman forces, often it's Russia versus the Ottoman Empire. And so you have, you know, you end up having these, these mixings of where different Muslim and uh, Turkic people live and where different, you know, in the case of the Balkans, Slavic and Christian people live. Uh, and, and of course, you even have like Slavic Muslims and non, non-Slavic Christians and all sorts of stuff in the Balkans. And then, of course, same thing in the Caucasus. You, know, you have a mix of these different ethnic groups where it's actually, you know, it, it can, even if we did redraw the lines, it would be a little bit difficult. We see similar stuff in the Middle East because of the decisions by the French and the British uh, to draw lines that didn't reflect ethno-sectarian divisions. One of the hard things about resolving this, uh, resolving this crisis is that most of the Artsakh region is Armenian. Uh, we've got a map of here of the Nagorno-Karabakh Autonomous Oblast, uh, which was part of the Azerbaijan SSR, in 1989. And you see uh, pockets of mainly Azeri people. Within that, you see cities where there are mixed Armenian and Azeri people. Um, and, you know, if if ultimately this gets resolved, is there, you know, with with a change in borders, is there going to be a partitioning or a post partition of India type mass movement of people in order for the, you know, the Azeri people to feel safe? We saw that happen in even Baghdad, that after the civil war provoked by the United States invasion, there was a uh, people just got up and moved um, if they were. I believe it was if they were Sunni, they or Shia, they moved east, and if they were Sunni, they moved west. So even if these lines get redrawn, there's going to be a lot of work to do in order to essentially help everyone feel safe. Because at this point, you know, the war has gotten to its worst point since 1994, and there's much bigger, heavier-hitting weaponry going on now. Um, so, for example, we have uh, Turkish. Was a one the Turks have shipped soldiers or, or fighters from northwest Syria that, that the Turks now occupy to Azerbaijan to get involved. Turkish fighter planes, F-16s, are in Azerbaijan. Both sides are using rocket artillery um, and apparently seem to be hitting civilian targets with that rocket artillery. They're using drones. And so there's just a lot more explosive, long-range firepower being used. Stepenkert, the, the capital of the region, has been repeatedly bombarded. And at this point, as Xander mentioned, when there's a larger scale of violence, it's harder to get the lid back on. It's harder for everyone to go back to living as next door neighbors and saying, all right, we're just going to try to get along again. Right. And you might be wondering if it is predominantly Armenian occupied, why does Azerbaijan still want it? Part of it is a security issue, but also part of it is that during this, the Soviet Union, Many Azeris did come to uh, see places like Shusha as a cultural capital of their own. And when Armenia occupied uh, Nagorno-Karabakh 
and the area that is also being referred to as the Republic of Artsakh, many Azeris were forcibly removed. So lots of people have lost what they consider to be their home uh, in different ways. Now, um, Eric, you talked a lot about sort of the interference of different empires in this region over time, and that's a, a really important dynamic to keep in mind as we move back from the past into the, uh, in the history we were discussing to the current day. And one of, one of the main axes in the Caucasus is this competition between Turkey and Russia, and this has been going on for hundreds and hundreds of years. Um, Turkey, formerly the Ottoman Empire, has fought something like 15 wars with Russia. Um, depending on what you count as a war since the late 17th century. Um, so, and including in World War I. And part of the reason uh, Turkey uh, implemented the genocide against the Armenians was because when Russia invaded the Caucasus in World War I, many Armenians who have a faith that's more similar to Eastern Orthodox Christianity than, the, than Islam, which is what the Ottoman Empire was, sided with the Russians as they came down and in, uh, in, into the Caucasus. So the Ottomans saw that as a threat and decided that the way to handle the threat was to expel all of them and send them to the desert to die. So as we get back into the current day, remembering that history is really important because something that's been going on the last couple of years between Russia and Turkey has been economic cooperation. And people have been thinking that, oh, they look like buddies, but really they have been fighting yeah. for hundreds of years because of you know security issues related to who controls this little strip of land that really leads into important territories in Russia and in Turkey, so the fact that it also has a lot of oil in it, yes, oil and gas in in Azerbaijan, not in Armenia, correct. And that's an important distinction because Azerbaijan has a lot more money to spend on arms, which it buys from Russia, and that's that's yet another complication of this conflict is that. Though Russia has historically sided with Christians in this area, and Russia in the past, when it was still the Russian Empire, has used the presence of Christians in areas as an excuse to interfere. They, they call themselves, like in the time of Catherine the, the Great, as protectors of the Christians and wherever. And then they said, fine, so we get to intervene and, and kick out whoever. While that has historically been the relationship, and while Russia is still an ally of Armenia today and has a military base, uh, proper in Armenia with between three and 5,000 Russian soldiers, Russia also sells arms to Azerbaijan, and Azerbaijan has more money to buy better arms from Russia than Armenia has been able to. So Russia has kind of been straddling this, this uh, fence a little bit. And when the war broke out in sort of 1988 and lasted to 1994, Russia had a very ambiguous role uh, because it was, you know, was it even a state at that point? And you had like former Soviet soldiers kind of like involved in the fighting in ways that were really hard to categorize. But today you have Turkey sending these Syrian uh, fighters from the territory that it recently conquered in Syria to go fight. Now, if you are Armenian, it's, it's hard to look at this and, and not from the perspective of you know, the, the historical baggage of the genocide, because Turkey is not owned up to it. Uh, Turkey calls Azeris their Turkic brethren. And now yep. you have uh, Turkey sending fighters to kill Armenians in a, again uh, in in a territory that is that is uh, well that the Armenians consider to be Armenian. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So when I talked about self determination at the beginning of the episode, like with with my Jewish heritage, it's hard for me to not compare this to like what happened if mm. what would happen if Germany never owned up to the Holocaust and you know. There, there was some Middle Eastern country attacking Israel, and Germany started sending soldiers to back up the enemy of Israel. Right? You—that's a really good perspective. Yeah, yeah. Imagine if the imagine if the Germans sent fight, you know, fighter planes and soldiers to Egypt during the Six Day War. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A, a lot yeah. of Jews would be pissed off about it. So today, uh, this conflict is is stirring back up. Um, Turkey is. Outwardly supporting Azerbaijan, which it did not do in the war in the 1990s, it became it got very close to intervening at one point, and there's kind of like this stare down between Russia and Turkey, but Turkey ended up backing off. But Turkey did not overtly get involved in the war as it has begun to this time around. Russia has tried to broker um, a ceasefire. It did earlier in the month, earlier in October. Although the ceasefire is not held, fighting has continued, and now we have the specter potentially 
of this local war becoming a regional war, possibly between Russia and Turkey. Now, like I said, it's complicated and Russia kind of sits on both sides of the fence. But that's that's in a nutshell what what people are fighting about in Karabakh right now and why the risk is and why there's the risk for potentially broader regional conflict. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. Plush care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Yeah, one of the things to keep in mind here is that uh, again, as much as the Russians and the Turks have been playing nice in public, you know, in, in, in PR and have been making some trade deals, they've also been on opposing sides of a number of proxy wars for years now. Yeah. So the Russians and Turks have different desired outcomes in Syria. Mm-hmm. Now, now, there are some now because Syria is so multifaceted, there are some things they agree on. They both agree on the Kurds not getting too powerful. But it's because the Russians want the Assad regime to remain powerful and the Turks just don't want the Kurds to establish their own state at all. Um, but the Russians are not happy that the Turks invaded northern, northern Syria. And uh, its Russian-backed fighters and Turkish-backed fighters had been killing each other. Same, similarly in Libya, they backed, they backed different sides of that horse or different horses in that race, sorry. and you know, Libya's Libya's lower intensity war, although it, you know, it also flares up. And so they're both pouring money into these, you know, these kind of failed state wars in order to try to achieve uh, competing objectives. And what we have now is Turkey going in fairly hard on the side of Azerbaijan, which again, from from their perspective, look, it's their territory. Armenia illegally occupies it. The international community does not recognize Artsakh and, you know, and, it, and, and of course, we don't even we don't even quite know who who shot first to start this. But um, and nobody quite knows. Uh, and, and of course, both sides say the other side started. But, you know, but from from Turkey's perspective or from from a pro Azerbaijani perspective, it's it's internationally recognized Azerbaijani territory that is currently occupied. And, you know, look and and. Again, to 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 at least give a perspective on that, if you know, I don't know if the if Mexico held a part of southern Texas and New Mexico because they said, look, it's like you you took this from us all that time ago. Like you, you, you know, uh, the Americans took it from Mexico in a war. Right. And if the Mexicans occupied it one day, you know, would would I as an American sit, be sitting here saying like, well, you know, maybe we should just let them secede. Right. And so um, and so you can have a little bit of sympathy for the perspective of the Armenians. Like, look, this is our territory and and the world recognizes it. Right. Yeah. And the point you make about who shot first is is a great one, because I've been following news in especially the South Caucasus for several years now. I've written about it uh, when I used to work at Geopolitical Futures. And something that's notoriously challenging about following events there is it's just both sides present such differing stories um, that if you want local news, like Armenian press and uh, Azeri press are going to say just completely opposite things all the time. So right now, there's there's, uh, a lot of international press saying Azerbaijan was the aggressor. I read an article on Al Jazeera, which if you'll recall, is a uh, Mm -hmm. Qatari-owned media organization, which I, I frankly don't know which way they lean. But this article argued that um, Armenia was responsible for the recent uh, outbreak in violence in part because the president of Armenia, Pashinyan, 
who came to power in 2018 in a peaceful re- uh, revolution. He promised a lot and has been unable to deliver. And domestically, uh, opinion of, of him has begun to turn against him. So mm-hmm. he's been trying to, you know, round up national sen- sentiment by focusing on this issue. And he actually walked back on an agreement between Armenia and Azerbaijan that had held, I think, for maybe 10 or 12 years. And he said, I know we no longer agree to these points. You need to move your forces from these territories, something, something. So there's a lot of conflicting information out there. In addition, uh, there's a New York Times article we're posting where you hear me and Xander hedging what we're saying a little bit. We're saying according to, right, as you know, sources say kind of thing, which we, which we don't like to do. We don't like to not take full responsibility for what we're saying. But, but, uh, but again, we're being very clear that we don't know. And all these people who spend more time on this are, are taking their best stab at what's going on. Um, and so here's another perspective that a retired Turkish general, Ismail Haki Pekin, said to the New York Times um, that when Armenia killed a, a, an Azeri general and other officers in Azerbaijan's army in a missile strike during a border skirmish in July, and who, who started shooting in, in that border skirmish in July? Who, you know, I don't know. Someone knows. Turkey immediately offered to help prepare a response. And Turkish and Azerbaijani joint military exercises ensued, raising tensions. So this is the this may even be the kind of thing that who shot first in September is almost irrelevant, uh, because this was the kind of thing that was had been building up over the summer. Interestingly, the the perspective of the analysts that the New York Times interviews are that were the world not distracted by things such as the coronavirus, primarily, uh, but also Belarus. Uh, the United States presidential election, other stuff like that. It's entirely possible that, you know, Russia is distracted by Belarus. America is distracted by itself. And this is the kind of thing where there had been these skirmishes in the past that hadn't blown up into full scale war because diplomacy was able to swoop in and get a lid on it, including the four day war in 2016. And that this, you know, this was the kind of thing that that there were warning signs that were missed or that were not acted on. That led that led to this, you know, that led to this s, you know, being in a position for escalation, and um, so I think we're gonna we're at least gonna come out of this podcast saying we don't know who shot first, and I don't want to say more, you know, I don't want to say it doesn't matter because there may be a moral perspective that it does, but in terms of you know, in in terms of this being the situation being on a hair trigger from what happened over the summer. Um, it's the kind of thing that seen that, that without intervention or prevention of some, of some sort may, may have been inevitable. Yeah. And I, I think something that's worth mentioning is when we talk about Turkey's intervention, uh, and this is a whole, you know, other podcast, potentially uh, Turkey's domestic political situation is also very divided. And there have been mm. these trends in recent years sort of away from the secularism that Turkey has been known for since you know, the 1920s, back towards what a lot of analysts are referring to as neo-Ottomanism and this idea that Turkey will reconquer some of the territory previously held by the Ottoman Empire and its justification will be you know, not quite a reemergence of the caliphate, but something in that direction. And in August, in, in regards to the conflict in the Caucasus, President Erdogan who leans on the side of being in favor of neo-Ottomanism and using Islam as, as sort of an excuse for, for this sort of behavior again, he said the following, In our civilization, conquest is not occupation or looting. It is establishing the dominance of the justice that Allah commanded in the region. We invite our interlocutors to put themselves in order and stay away from mistakes that will open the way for them to be destroyed. And he he has statements like this all the time and made statements like this when uh, Turkey invaded northwest Syria. But what's different now um, than in the 1990s is that Turkey has begun redrawing borders in the Middle East under the auspices of um, pan-Islamism, if you want to call it that. The idea that Islam supersedes nationalism and you know, who is uh, a, a quote unquote, you know, who your brethren is depends more on your religion than what country you belong to. And that's extremely concerning to our, you know, Armenians who suffer the hands of the genocide of, you know, an, an entity that that Erdogan is beginning to remind them. of. Yeah, I'm a oh, quick question. 
when you say are redrawing borders in the Middle East, do you mean de facto borders, for example, the occupation of northwest Syria? Or do you mean is there is Turkey exhibiting some sort of yeah, some sort of broader or or more deliberate and aggressive path towards actually expanding its borders, you know, on on the you know, that 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 would that would cause us to have to like update our globes. Yeah. I more de facto borders because, you know, Turkey conquered northern Syria and still occupies it, even though, right. you know, the internationally recognized borders of Syria are the same Syrian borders. But Turkey's right. been becoming more aggressive in other places, too, including the Eastern Med and putting pressure on NATO because it has this thing with Greece and wants more control mm. of the waters around it. But the thing that's interesting to me is that... Oh, and they, they've been more active in Cyprus, too. Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, if you look at the history of the Ottoman Empire, oftentimes the way that the Ottoman Empire expanded and even at its peak power is almost sort of like this like neo-feudalist empire. It was not all the time centrally mm-hmm. governed. There were centrally governed provinces, but then there were other provinces that were within the Ottoman Empire that were governed locally. And the Ottoman Empire would often use auxiliary forces to kind of play at the borders of his empire when um, it was like there was an issue that wasn't central to Istanbul's right. security. And now we're seeing Turkey do that again by sending aux- auxiliary Syrian forces to go fight on behalf of quote unquote Turkic brethren on, you know, what could be considered the periphery of what Turkey may perhaps want to reconquer at some point. So there, mm. there are those similarities, even though, you know, the borders haven't been re- redrawn on the map. Right. Right. Yeah. Interesting. Cause I had, I think the, the, when I saw that note, the way I was scratching my head was I thought, well, you know, the Russians uh, would intervene un- under the, you know, for a long time, intervene first under the flag of Christianity and then under the flag of uh, socialism or, or communism. And the Americans will intervene under the flag of uh, liberty and democracy. And so I was wondering what's fundamentally different, you know, and, and of course, Turkey, Turkey has conflicts on, you know, has a huge conflict on its southern border. Um, it's now got a conflict to its east. And, you know, that stuff spills over, right? It becomes a it becomes a problem for Turkey. And so, of course, I'm sitting here thinking, well, if I'm Turkey, I'm I'm getting involved, right? Because I want to put a lid on this and and just like have some effing stability already. Um, But uh, but it sounds like it sounds like what's what's different from just intervening with a, you know, with an eye to security and, and a, you know, some, some sort of principled excuse, be it Islam or Christianity or democracy or communism, there is a, there's a sense of long-term ownership that's emerging, right? Like this is, this is, you know, it's not administered by us as a nation, but we are, we're going to camp at, you know, it's, I, I wonder if, if, Turkey after this is going to be much more camped out in Armenia in the long term, the way that it is in Syria. Yeah. And that poses the risk of Turkish Russian confrontation because Russia has shown in recent history that it's willing to send military forces to the Caucasus to protect what it considers to be its interests. The Georgian war in 2008 and it's Mm -hmm. redrawn borders in the Black Sea more recently than that. Um, I, I guess one thing we haven't talked about yet on this episode is how the U.S. is involved. Um, and I actually almost feel like that's fitting because the U.S. is just so <laughs> distracted at home right now that um, it, it I don't know if it completely lacks the ability to be involved, because I know that Pompeo brokered some sort of meeting recently in Washington between yeah. Armenia and Azer, Azeri leaders. But, you know, President Trump, I think it was today because I'm reading this Newsweek article and it says it was released an hour ago. Said that he's going to straighten out what's going on in the South Caucasus. It'll be easy and he'll get a Nobel Prize for peace for it. Boom. And, you know, the, the challenge with statements like that, <laughs> Sorry. besides the obvious, I guess, is like when the U.S. takes hard stands on these issues in places where it really doesn't have like a core security interest. And I'm not saying that it's not important for the U.S. to take a moral position on, you know, violence one way or another. But like in 2008. The U.S. said, Russia, here's the red line. Don't come over. And then Russia just basically said, go fuck yourself. And the U.S. didn't do anything because why is the U.S. going to send military forces to Georgia? Right. I I think we're going to be seeing more of that sort of uh, inability to project power in places of the world where maybe historically in the last 30 years. So we would have expected the U.S. to be able to. I think we will be seeing more of that. 
So, so far in the conflict, the U.S. has not been that involved, and that kind of makes sense. Yeah, and other than, other than a humanitarian interest, this is, I mean, to some extent, the United States has an interest in Russia and Turkey not going to war, although cynically, mm, yeah. right, having, we are not on the best of terms with either country right now, although you know, I think the U.S. has a long-term interest in in getting back into good graces with Turkey, if possible. You know, having having that knife hanging out, you know, low in the belly of of Russia is is important to the United States strategy of deterrence. But uh, but yes, at this you know at this point we've you know we've struggled to be on the same page with Turkey, and Turkey is throwing its weight around as it wants, not as Washington wants, and. Uh, and that's that is an extremely you know that's it's an extremely important part of if the United States is able to kind of focus its its collective foreign policy mind on what to do about this um, the fact that the fact that for example Turkey invaded northern Syria against you know ag- against U.S. Uh, wishes is when when we had a bunch of troops there and we kind of had to scramble them out of the way. Um, in order to prevent, you know, any any potential conflict from arising, that's a sign that, you know, that's that's a sign certainly that the alliance is strained. So as you get close to the end of this episode, I, I, I just want to quickly recap what I what I hope we've covered, because this is an extraordinarily complex uh, topic. Jeez. Yeah. Why Azerbaijan and Armenia are fighting? Why Nagorno-Karabakh currently belongs to Azerbaijan, even though it's primarily occupied? by Armenians, not just militarily, but also Armenians, uh, ethnic Armenians primarily live there. Now, if you're interested in learning more, we're doing something that we don't always do. We're including a lot of more uh, academic and book sources for, for the show notes of this episode. There's a great book called The Caucasus by a scholar, Thomas Van de Waal. Um, it's, a, it's a brief history of the Caucasus. It's about a 250-page book. It's really wonderful if you're interested in learning more about sort of how these really complex conflicts in this small region came to be and why they could have uh, a greater regional impact. We also have a couple of um, scholarly articles that we'll cite that will talk a little bit more about the quote-unquote Armeno-Tatar War and the massacres of 1905 to 1907 and sort of how that got going. There's also a great Vice documentary uh, that I mentioned earlier that we'll have a link to and you can go kind of see what the conflict actually looks like on the ground. And then lastly, our good friends at Visual Politique have both English and Spanish language videos on this conflict. Some are a little older from six months ago. Some are more recent. Um, Go check those out. But Eric, I want to ask you, what is our reconsider moment for this episode? Yeah, good question. Because we don't just want to, you know, here at Reconsider, we don't just want to report well on what's going on. And we do, you know, our, our, what are we trying to do? One, give you context to better understand something. But then two, we always want to leave you with a nugget to take away that you can apply elsewhere, right? The purpose of Reconsider is not to help you become an expert on the Caucasus. Mm-hmm. The purpose of Reconsider is to help you do the thinking for yourself. And so in this case, um, I think the Reconsider moment, there, there is at least one of them. And one of them is that context, geopolitical and historical context matters massively in informing us when something's going to be a big deal um, and when it's going to, you know, when it's, a, when it's a bigger risk than another kind of conflict. So, for example, Libya, as horrible as it has been in Libya, and as much as it pulled in many, many outside powers, it did not risk turning into a massive regional conflict. Why? In part because, you know, in part because it's, I mean, what's, what's kind of nice about it is it's, it's along the coast uh, and it's otherwise a big desert. And it's, you know, neighboring countries didn't, you know, didn't have a security or ethnic or historical interest in a um, particular in a particular outcome, or at least not a strong one. They mostly just want it to be done with and for it to move on. Um, And so you have all this intervention with the hopes of, you know, either one, get rid of the bad dictator, which is what the West did. Um, or, you know, just just resolve this. And you have people falling on these different sides, but the stakes are fairly low. The stakes are ultimately fairly low in Libya for these outside powers, where in the Caucasus, much smaller conflict, far fewer people. And 
you know, just smaller in terms of, of, of immediate scale, right? You have much, much higher risk. Why? Because of the history and because of the geo, like because of the, the, uh, and the history is driven by the geopolitics as well, right? There's a reason Russia and Turkey have been to war 15 times. And it's because, and it's often in this area or Crimea, and it's because those are both critical points, even geographically, that matter dreadfully to their security. Um, like the Caucasus Mountains, uh, if they were like, if you had just this really powerful force sitting on the Caucasus Mountains, say the United States, they could just say, hey, everyone chill out, right? Because they're a nice, big, big mountain range that separates these two groups. But the Caucasus Mountains are in part occupied by you know, Russian allies and in part occupied by Turkish allies. And then there's Georgia, who like really desperately wants to join the West, but can't because Russia doesn't want a Western presence in there. That's why there was that war. And so this mountain range is critically important to the security, the, the military security of Russia and Turkey. And so there's a lot of risk there. Similarly, the ha- looking at the map and seeing you know, where these areas live and where the Armenians live helps us understand, you know, and, and kind of who has in, who has a ethnic or religious interest in this um, is secondarily important, but it's also important. This is part of a broader, this is a part of a part of a broader Balkan like um, struggle to create uh, spaces where people can live um, in peace and, and feel safe. When, you know, in the past, that wasn't a problem. They all lived near each other in part because there were, you know, again, during the Ottoman Empire, they were just part of, you know, the way that the Ottomans ruled over these different ethnic groups and different religious groups was very well tailored to um, create a sense of peace and security for everyone. That's not true anymore. And so that kind of context in the Caucasus makes it a very, very different conflict from, say, Libya. And makes it much, much more likely to uh, become a, a runaway war. And so I think, yeah, I think that's that's takeaway number one, that this this historical context, but and and uh, the historical context really is a is a pointer to the geopolitical factors um, and the security factors at play for and for whom in these conflicts um, is a is really key to us, on you know, understanding whether we should be really worried about something or or less worried about something. And I think maybe the second reconsider moment here is just the recognition of how how much in-group out-group sentiment really matters because you can have the same people and a reconfiguration of identity can drive conflict that where previously there wasn't any and you know for over 100 years after that we still have conflict related to the formation of those new identities. So identity is extremely important. Changing identity sometimes leads to turmoil and conflict and violence. Um, and we reference the Balkans a lot in this episode because we see those similarities. And we have a, an episode about Balkan nationalism and identity. We're going to put a link up there if you want to go listen to it. Check out our show notes at reconsidermedia.com. Well, thanks for listening. With that, we'll say, don't let the pundits do the thinking for you. Pause and reconsider. This is Xander signing off. And this is Eric signing off. Uh, We might not see you till after the election. So there might be one more episode before that. I don't know. But stay safe. Stay sane. Go vote if you're American or if you're not. And you have an election coming up. But uh, this November 3rd, remember, you know, please vote and vote early. Vote safely. Vote by mail if you need to. Just vote. Uh, It's a it's a big deal obviously. And regardless of where you fall on the political spectrum, the most important thing this year is that we have a free and fair election that represents the will of the people. Go make your voice heard. This is Eric signing off. Well done. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. 
And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's best sellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com, code GLOW.